Boo. You think I'm a good girl? Just wait and see. We're bad girls. This is what we do. I'm the girl that's gonna save your life. Eh, you shot pretty well. For a boy. Can't you handle a woman with a big gun? I put the fun in funeral. I like my men covered in blood. Hail to the queen, baby. I can, and I will. I can, and I will. I'll take a bite out of you. Beware the sirens. Welcome back to another spine-chilling episode of Sirens of Horror. As always, I'm your mistress of evil, Ella Abella, along with... Her sister of sin, Ashley Slashy. And today, we have a very, very awesome and special guest. <laughs> uh, this is Gillian, who is both the writer, director, and star of I Blame Society... Uh, a film that I have now watched three times uh, <laughs> because I just fell in love with it and I kept wanting to watch it. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you liked the movie. <laughs> it's always going to be a little nervous, like sending out stuff. I'm like, would you like to do this? Because <laughs> that's yeah. really worse. Somebody says no. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, that's why I let the, that's why I let Caitlin do it. <laughs> I don't whenever, have to take the rejection personally. <laughs> whenever we, uh, before this, we did our short film seduction. Before that, I had a series called Once Upon University that was Disney princesses in college. And I would just always send her out. Yeah, I was like, I was people. her, yeah, I was basically her press, her PR person, her PA person. I was like, hey, so we're doing a thing and this is the thing and you should check out the thing and she directed and you know and, or, and, and she directed and wrote the thing and she also does this part of the thing and then she'd be like hi <laughs> but if you were like go talk to this person I would just be like no I mean yeah it's a totally different skill set um and and it definitely favors the people who are comfortable self-promoting and um, mm -hmm. you know they 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 tell, when I was in film school, they were like, you've really got to learn how to hustle and, you know, like advocate for yourself. But I don't think, um, I think that's really hard. I think also it sometimes, you know, it looks, um, it, it, it's hard to trust people when they, when they're talking themselves up, you know, it really, it seems like the person, you know, like is vain or whatever. And it's just more authentic coming from another source. So I, I think that, you know, it's uh, if I didn't have Caitlin, I would definitely make up Caitlin and have like a, you know, a Caitlin to send out emails and stuff. <laughs> but fortunately, Caitlin is real and she's really good at what she does. So I'm lucky We've to have seen her. Caitlin. We can now officially validate yes. Caitlin is a person. Yeah. No, I'm definitely uh, right there with you. Like whenever people are like, oh, what are you doing right now? I'm like, oh, I have a and I do this and I'm, I'm <laughs> the, on this and then there's me who goes to Trader Joe's wearing like shirts like this or like I love scary movies shirts and then the cashier person's like oh I like your shirt and I'm like oh thanks I went to this event with my best friend who runs a horror podcast with me and, da, da, da. and they're like oh a horror podcast oh my god so yeah like we're complete opposites <laughs> I see you like give out stickers at gas stations for the podcast <laughs> just being like oh do you have a sticker on you I need to give it to the person. I'm just like, how? <laughs> how did this happen? 
<laughs> it's hard. I don't know. I, I think that's the hardest thing. You know, sometimes you go to film festivals and, you know, you're coming with a film that doesn't have, um, you know, we didn't have Caitlin when we were um, uh, putting the film out through the film festivals and trying to find a distributor and stuff. We just had really nifty postcards, but postcards don't pass out themselves. You have mm-hmm. to have the moxie to to you know go up to somebody and you know regardless of how you feel about your film you have to like pretend like you think that it's worth watching um and it's it's hard it's hard to just you know to give them to somebody and uh I don't know wonder like oh this person like thinks that you know I'm so annoying right now but there's no other way to do it so I don't know I just kind of fake it and act like I'm just it was the thrill of my life to give somebody a postcard, you know? I just keep her around. I'm just like, go. Yep. <laughs> just give her like half a can of Monster and release her into an area. I have never tried an energy drink, actually. Oh, God. And I've never had Taco Bell. <laughs> You're not so missing said, I, anything I've got with a few nevers to, to get yeah, through. Yeah, I mean, you know, Taco Bell's good occasionally when you're like, drunk and you're like okay you know what that really sounds good right now but you're really not missing much with Taco Bell. (laughs) The only thing that I've ever heard is it was three years ago that was three years ago uh my husband Josh had never had a grilled cheese sandwich. Oh that's sick. (laughs) That's not okay. (laughs) Finally we were at like this really it's uh like the biggest tower in Oklahoma called the Devon Tower there's a restaurant at the top and it's super fancy and they had grilled cheese. And I'm like, if you're going to try one grilled cheese in your life, try it at this super goddamn overpriced fancy ass place. Cause it'll be the best if you never mm-hmm. do it again. You know, it's just as good as grilled cheese is, have you ever had a Welsh rare bit? No. What is that? It's like the, it's like the elderly grandfather of the grilled cheese sandwich. It's, um, it's like you take like a, a hot plate of melted cheese mixed with beer and paprika, and then you dip bread into it. That sounds like everything I like. Yeah, <laughs> it's super good. Cheese, I mean, beer, and spice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wait, do you live in LA? I used to. I do. To. I, I do? live in Orange County, and then she uh, she moved to Oklahoma just uh, last year. Six months ago. Um, Tama Shanters has Welsh rarebit. If you're ever around Atwater, they have it and it's just super great. Weirdly enough, there's like five Irish English pubs in Oklahoma City. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm just like, cool. Good to know. Why not? And we probably found good ramen, which was my biggest fear. I was like, I can't go without ramen, especially when it's snowing and like 10 degrees. Mm. So, so are you guys in the a, middle of winter weather right now? Uh, it's been an experience moving here. Uh, the second month I was here, we got the worst snowstorm in five years, which Lily meant, or ice storm. And because it was still not winter, just tree limbs broke everywhere because oh the God. leaves got icy and there was oh, yeah. And everyone here was like, this isn't normal. I'm like, I don't believe a single goddamn one of you. Yeah, and you also were out of power. Yeah, we didn't have power for 13 days. Um, 13 days, wow. Oh my God. Now I, I finally like over the time, like I've, I've got a long wool coat 
I've bought gloves. <laughs> we have a working fireplace. So it's still cold as hell out here, but at least I'm like prepared. Yeah. No, I mean, I grew up in Virginia. Um, okay. So it's very like, you get all of the seasons, which is nice. You know, it's like the leaves change color in the fall and it's very beautiful. Um, it's really humid in the summer, which I like. I really like humidity. Um, and then it's, you know, dark and dismal and for a long, long winter and it snows and it, it's actually like, you get the tail end of hurricanes as well. So it's oh, just, geez. it's a lot of different kinds of weather. But I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. It was not it was a really boring place to grow up in that way. Great schools, but boring. <laughs> I will admit before the ice storm from hell, um, <laughs> like the leaves in our backyard started changing color. And I, I looked like I should have been like in a Hallmark film. Like I would just walk in the backyard and be like. I know, <laughs> I know, right? What is happening? We would drive places and I would just feel like against the window, like. Oh my God. Everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, the only thing that falls in all, like in LA during fall is palm fronds, the size of your car that you're terrified of. So yep. when they're on fire, because yep. it's the Santa yeah. Ana winds is bringing the, the fire off the mountains. So, so this is very magical for me. So just let me experience this. I'm a, I'm a hardcore desert rat. I've lived in LA, Arizona, New Orleans. I tried to move to New York. And uh, I lasted until November. And I mm -hmm. was like, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. That was too much of a cold for me. <laughs> but uh, it's been nice. Like I miss LA, but like right now in COVID restrictions, I'm like, what would I- You're not uh, missing anything. Yeah. Everybody's just in their house. Totally. <laughs> well, so I, I traded in a one bedroom apartment for a three bedroom house. So at least if I'm stuck, I have room to pace more now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Uh, Ashley, you want to start off with our first question of the interview uh, now that we've discussed sure. weather and food, which of course yeah. is the beginning to any good interview. Right. <laughs> um, so what inspired, uh, Jillian, what inspired you in your life to write this film? Um, well, it's all true. It all happened exactly as you, as you see on screen. So it was just a matter of, you know, uh, recreating real life. Um, in, in real life, I was told by a couple of friends that I would make a good murderer. And I took it as a compliment because I think that anytime somebody tells you that you're good at something, that's a compliment. And um, also my suburban upbringing, I'm such a people pleaser, you know, I just like, <laughs> positive reinforcement. Um, so, you know, when we were, you know, when my friends and I you know, were talking about this expanding on this idea of, you know, what makes a good murderer, it's mm -hmm. um, somebody who, you know, has, has a vision of what they're trying to achieve and uh, is aware of the kind of resources that they can bring to, to this project, uh, you know, and what their strengths are. Uh, being able to improvise around any obstacles that you would find, and also um, having the, the determination and the grit to be able to, to see it through until the end and to, to not give up even as you're facing uh, criticism or law enforcement or, or whatever that could be. Oh, and so, law enforcement. So we, you know, 
it was obvious from, you know, listing these things that it was the same uh, qualities that make a good murderer, also the same qualities that make a good film director. So that uh, intrigued me and made me think about, um, uh, you know, turning it into a film. That's funny because like I, I've, I've pretty much told uh, Ella the, the same thing. I'm like, you would be a good murderer and I'd be the one that would like strategically figure out, okay, so you figure out the, st- the strategies of killing the person. I'll figure out the strategies of helping you hide the body so no one will find it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, same, like you, you made the analogy of uh, directing as well, how that kind of, they kind of you know, melds together. <laughs> I think I make people more uncomfortable when they tell me I'd be a good serial killer because I get way too precise. Because I'm just better than being sloppy. I'm like, all it really takes, like, as long as they don't find the body for six hours, the insulin will dissipate. Mm -hmm. Huh? I didn't know that. Yeah, insulin insulin will dissipate in your body under six hours. It will leave no no proof, and it'll just look like you had a heart attack. The thing is, you got to hide the needle mark. Uh huh. Why not then use somebody's tongue? It's either tongue or my favorite is the rectum. If you go inside. <laughs> Everybody's always looking inside the rectum. It's the first place the coroner looks. Every, that's if law and order SVU taught me anything. <laughs> Got like a little microscope, microscopic uh, camera going up the rectum. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I get, I get uh, creepily precise. I, I am definitely a fan of like, uh, all the forensic files, murder mysteries. I like 500 books on between female serial killers and Dahmer and Gein and stuff like that. So I feel like if I were to become a serial killer, like I would, I would want to do homage killings. Yeah, you would huh. never, never do the same thing. It would be no, like, oh, you, like, like you do a like good a black nice Dahlia and then you do a Dahmer and then you do an Ed Gein and then you do a Manson. I just, yeah. I, I don't have the background. I know I'm, you know, I, it was my co-writer who really brought all of the true crime stuff to the project. He's, <laughs> you know, a total expert, knows about all that stuff. And uh, uh, it was really useful to have his, his input on that. Cause I don't know, I'm, I love horror movies. And, but it's, you know, I, I suppose that's like where like my range of knowledge really comes from is being able to, you know, to reference, uh, the fictional element rather than you, you being able to draw from life of a buffalo bill to me you, you gave me a little that is bit of awesome. buffalo bill <laughs> i could yeah i, I think i i agree with uh, ella that one you do kind of give the buffalo bill vibes because you had you uh, had the preening moments and those like i mm-hmm. look good but then like the slinking ones i was like kind of getting like female buffalo bill from this well you didn't see but i also tucked my dick in while we were doing the movie all the time <laughs> see it was just something I felt in my soul. <laughs> I love that movie. You know, it's funny when I watched it, like the first time, for some reason I was 11 or something. I was like, yeah, it's okay. And uh, like when I'm, when I was older and I like kind of got how unusually weird it was for something at that budget level and that prestige level. And also very much like a Jonathan Demme movie, it made me just really appreciate it and how like hard it went and how it went there. And Ted Levine is so good in that part he's just Mm -hmm. he is I think he is sexy um and charming and just I mean it's that's my type unfortunately (laughs) I'm (laughs) 
I need to go do dating boot camp or something and like get my <laughs> mind mind washed so I'm not attracted to Buffalo Bills anymore. But that's that's fine. It was the it went around like a year ago where it's like what's the opposite of the manic pixie dream girl? And it was like the demon nightmare boy. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. And it was like every fictional character I've ever been attracted to. And I was just like, (laughs) I am so uncomfortable right now that I have that really bad kicked puppy with a knife that I just could think I could take. Yeah, it was like Kylo Ren, uh, Zuko from Avatar. It was just all of them. It was um, like boys with like stat from uh, Interview with the Vampire. It was all of those. And I was just like, oh, okay, maybe I have a type. (laughs) I think it's not because of it's not because of what they do it's not the fact that they are like killers or murderers or psychos I think that the fact is that they have confidence and style and you know because you're allowed to bring something much more hyperbolic and performative to a role like that whereas you know, you compare them to somebody who's playing a very straight role, you know, um, you know, just a detective or CIA agent or whatever, they seem boring and neurotic, you know? Or if you add a little blood and guts suddenly in a cape, suddenly it's flourishing and dramatic. Mm -hmm. All the neuroses is still there, (laughs) but suddenly it has flourish. (laughs) Expressiveness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, um, and I think it's something that your character had too that was just kind of uh, a liking life. Like if you look at like all these characters that, you know, these bad boys, the Buffalo Bills and your character in the film, like they're living their best life. Yeah, like they're having fun. They're not like, they're they're not killing just to kill. Like they're killing just to kill, but they're also like, I'm actually kind of having fun with this. They're not sitting sure. at a desk for- 9 p.m. to 5 yeah. p.m. They're ha- in, they're living their best murderous lives. Right. Like, I think when you break the boundaries, you know, you're just letting go and you've kind of decided that you have nothing to lose. And that's a very liberating feeling. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I was going to say, like when your character was stalking the girl, like you pretended you had this whole persona that you had put on. You're like, I'm going to pretend to be a tourist. And I'm like, walking around as a tourist and da, da 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 and like you so like meticulously kind of put on this like uh I guess yeah like I'll say persona again like you've meticulously put this persona together to like help stalk her and uh you know kind of go with what your plan was yeah yeah I mean it's um you know, you kind of create an alter ego to allow yourselves to, to break the, to break the rules. Like, you know, like I'm not doing this, you know, it's somebody else, but mm-hmm. eventually, you know, the, I think the line bleeds between the two because you're the person who is actually doing it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of uh, the freeing aspect is like, we all just as a person, you're like, these are my good qualities. These are my bad qualities. This is me on a good day. This is me on a bad day. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to those like, you know, vampire, serial killer, Buffalo Bill, they don't have good or bad days. They mm-hmm. just are every single day. Mm-hmm. 
And it's no longer kind of black and white of like, oh, this is a good quality and a bad quality. It's that full acceptance of every part of yourself, even the dark ones that I feel you look at and you go, that looks so free, that looks so magical, that looks so sexy. Yeah, I can see, I can see that. It's interesting. It's also probably kind of, it's probably also kind of flattening in a certain way. So I, I think it's got like good, good and bad qualities to it for sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you because uh, when we first watched the film, I was like, oh, this is, oh, it's really well acted, really well done. And then I went back and looked at the press kit and uh, you wrote, directed and starred. Uh, I did that for two days and I have never been more exhausted in my life. Um, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> our old series, Once Upon a University, I wrote and directed for two, only two episodes. I was Ellie Elsa. And I don't, I don't remember anything after those nights. I literally remember waking up working and then I like woke up in my clothes like the next morning. And those were like two eight hour days and I've never been more exhausted. How did you manage to kind of pull yourself from this is how I have to act to this is how I have to direct to this is what my writing means and kind of break all those into different parts. Well, I think that you definitely are functioning on adrenaline, you know, and it's, it's this kind of feeling of like, look, this is all I ever wanted. And, uh, to, to, you know, be, had the chance to make a feature and now I've got it. So, you know, I've got nobody to blame for myself but myself, you know, for being here. And I need to, I need to achieve as much as I can and, and do as, you know, a good a job on everything. Um, it really, of course, does feel like you're doing, uh, you know, the acting and the directing each with one hand behind your back. And, you know, um, that's really frustrating feeling like, you know, you'd, you would do a better job if you could really just only focus on that one thing. But, um, I felt excited enough about the, the premise of, you know, taking this documentary footage and then kind of expanding on it to create a narrative. And I knew that therefore I had to act in it. Otherwise I would never have done that because the footage that we'd used previously um, had me in it, you know, we couldn't, couldn't recast. Yeah. Uh, so, I was very reliant on, um, on my DP and on the producers and as well on as my co-writer Chase, who was on set to, um, to help me to modify the performance as I needed it. I, I could watch takes back in the monitor and that was really helpful. Um, but sometimes, but after a certain point you run out of time and yeah. you need to just actually go kind of blind and, and keep going until you know you have it. And that's where I felt, you know, I really relied on Chase because he is one of the best actors that I know. He's, um, he starred in John Dies at the end. He's in The Guest. He's just incredibly talented. And I knew that if he was watching and if he thought that I got it in a take, then I got it and I could trust myself and move on. John Dye's name is actually what I, I did not realize. I watched the, the film the first time and I was like, where is he? Look? The John Dies at the End trilogy is actually one of my favorite book series. Mm. I love them. Uh, and so I was like, he looks so familiar. And then I looked it up and like squeaked. And I was like, oh, 
Oh, who's that pretty boy? Who's that pretty boy? I'm like, boy? you look really, and like, it was all the scenes where he looked like pensive. I was like, there, mm-hmm. now he looks familiar. <laughs> you look, you look confused and slightly disturbed. <laughs> now you look familiar. Oh yeah, because John dies at the end. And also, um, I've recommended this to you, Ashley, Video Game High School. Uh-huh. He's in that one as well. I said you and Chris would very much like. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look that up. My uh, husband is a video game. Uh, uh, he's a director of publishing for a video game company. So that's right up his alley. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But it definitely was a little thing. Uh, also, speaking of a very weird cameo <laughs> that uh, blew my brain. Was well, both Je- of our brains. <laughs> uh, Jesse Merlin. Oh, my God, Merlin was actually part, he was our criminologist at Rocky Horror Sins on Santa Monica. And the first time I was watching, or the second time I was watching, I heard his voice and I like stopped mm-hmm. and I was like, rewind? I've been dying to talk to somebody about this. Did you guys watch um, that Little Things movie that's come out, you know, with- uh, Not yet, the one that came out last week with uh, Leto and- yeah. No, we haven't watched so, it yet. I feel like Jared Leto is channeling Jesse in the movie. <laughs> He's like using Jesse's voice. Oh my God, Trust that's going to be a little disturbing. Yeah. That- uh, <laughs> I love Jesse so much. I've known him for a really long time. You know, I actually, I was working at, I think the first time I met him was I, well, I think I met, I saw him at the New Bev and somehow we had like a mutual friend and they introduced us. Um, and then the next week he came in to, uh, Amoeba where I was working and he had a Pasolini question. We talked about, uh, Pasolini and like, we kind of found out that we were both, you know, weirdos. And so he is just, do you know, I think he's actually the most well-read person that I've ever met. I would he not is the most, yeah, no, most erudite uh intelligent person ever and a sweetheart and a good person and a really talented actor and I just like uh I'm so glad that he does what he does I feel like something is going to happen where he is going to like get cast on like a tv show like 10 years from now and become like a fucking millionaire like he's waiting for his like role where he's like I I I don't know like he's Sid Hayes like Sid Hayes did all these really really tiny roles and then he got cast in The Devil's Rejects or in A House of a Thousand Corpses mm-hmm. and then was in everything for about 20 years. I feel like he's more like, I can't remember his name. Is He's a Texan actor. The guy who was, um, he's always in like a lot of 70s Westerns and stuff. And then he ended up getting cast as Higgins on Magnum P.I. I feel oh. like that that is what Jesse is going to do. Yeah, also, I... I understand this was not intentional, but I cackled at the realization because in Rocky Horror Picture Show, Jesse always played the criminologist. Right, right. And in there, he was playing the criminologist. And I was just, I spent about five minutes laughing, just being like, I know this isn't made for me, but I feel (laughs) like this was like a special gift. No, that's really cool. That's really cool. Like, I was like, where's the yeah. Sims I only chat? wish that he could be singing opera in the movie. Oh, yeah. It's like, where's where's the Rocky Horror Picture Show? I sent it to, like, four of my friends that were used to go to Sins. I was like, first of all, you need to watch this film. It's amazing. Second of all, you're going to get a kick for, like, 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, it's funny. Jesse like, Merlin 
the criminologist <laughs> plays a criminologist. It's great. We'll all have fun and support this film, but also <laughs> weird, deep cut for a, a Rocky Horror Picture show group. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of how like Ella and I met uh, was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. One of the, yeah, one of the many different times that we met. That was our uh, second time meeting. Yeah, that was our second time meeting where the interview, the inter- the universe was like, no, you two need to be friends. <laughs> uh, and I had gone up to her, she was outside smoking and I'd seen Rocky Horror Picture Show at this point, like probably 50 times because I knew everybody in the cast. And it was just a fun thing to do every Saturday night. And I was like, you know what? I want to be the globe girl. And Ella was always the globe girl. So I went up to her. She was outside smoking a cigarette. She had a duct tape bra on. And I go up that to her was, like, uh, first of all, that was gaff tape. I learned tape. past the age of 16 not to put duct tape on my bare skin. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would then put gaff tape and do patterns in gaff tape as a top to make sure nobody could take off my top or drop anything. It was a very secure manner of going to a Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> and uh, I'd asked her, I was like, do you mind if I'm a globe girl? And she was like, no, go right ahead. So like, you know, we, we both of us have this like weird, strange connection with Jesse through a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> he, is, he is one of the most, the only word I ever think of when I think of Jesse is commanding. Mm-hmm. Like when he talks, when he performs, when he sings, it's just, and it's, effortless he is he just does something and it's just you can't look away from him mm-hmm. uh one of my favorite parts of the film too were the producers <laughs> um, I love the producers that the whole those seeds were just amazing uh growing up in LA I actually I worked for Fangoria when I was very young uh doing special effects makeup and was very into it. I still do it. And it got to a certain point where my family was like, you know, we'll, we'll pay for you to go to school. We'll do this. And I was like, no, like, I don't want you to waste your money because eventually I'm going to run into somebody exactly like that. And I'm going to curse them out and I'm going to get blacklisted and you'll have spent $5,000 for me to turn the neighborhood kids into really terrifying demons. But I do not have the ability to shut my mouth when it comes to people like that. So I was like, no, I'm never gonna, I love film and I love it, but I'm never gonna get into the industry because I don't have an off switch. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious what, cause you said you're from Virginia. So in moving to LA, um, <laughs> What was the real pull from those? Was it like bad dates and just guys you meet at Starbucks? No, I mean, I actually was born in LA. Um, oh, okay. My, so, um, but my mom moved to Virginia for, for work when I was really young. But my grandparents always lived here. I've always had family here. So I would always come back um, during the summers. And I really love it here. I've always loved the city and its history. And so I I knew that I would always, I I knew that I would move here eventually. It was either going to be, it was either going to be living here in New York and I love New York, but I just at the time felt that 
is too expensive. And I also that I, you know, I went there for, for film school. So I wanted to try something different. So um, moving to LA was really awesome. Uh, I, it did take me a really long time to, to break in um, as it takes most people who aren't uh, related to somebody uh, mm-hmm. in the industry or married to somebody in the industry or like all started off acting, you know, at a very young age and then were, yeah. you know, basically parented themselves into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so be- it, because it took me so long, I had a lot of opportunities to do other things here. And um, so I. Uh, yeah, your your IMDb is uh, <laughs> insanely impressive oh thanks uh, I, I so I produced a, a, a documentary about a filmmaker Samuel Fuller and then I from there I did a lot of um do a lot of producing for blu-rays like uh, classic Hollywood movies like doing the tracking down the people who are still alive from those films or um interviewing film historians about that and that kind of um uses the the other degree I have in film studies which was what I was leading up to you know like it take it took so long to break in here that I got like another master's basically um or another master's. I got a master's you know why not it was fun and uh I was going in state and so it was uh I don't know it, it was it was good but you know the whole time I was like taking meetings and working and doing script stuff so um there was time to build up um, decades of weird interactions with people that could inform those scenes. And so um, most of them, you know, come from real life. Um, it's, it's sad that I didn't even have to exaggerate very much. Uh, you know, meetings are really just like that. And, and I think it's interesting. I think if, if any of the guys who were the basis for those characters watched the film, I think that they would be just confused as to why that behavior was, you know, uh, considered problematic or, or anything. And, you know, it's, it's partially, it's like hardly, you know, some of it is what they say for sure, but a lot of it is like the tone of the way they say it. And I think that, you know, our actors are really masterful mm-hmm. in, in providing like the, the condescending attitude uh, for it and the, the, the you know the too cool for school distance you know that that they bring yeah it, it definitely reminded me of so many people uh I grew up in Porter Ranch which back in the early 90s was the not not rich but like tv show rich place to live um so I knew a bunch of just actors because either they were child stars that we're just in the neighborhood so we went to the park together or older actors and about every summer at like one of the local bars was called uh the sweet room and about once every summer somebody would come in that was like decently famous like they were on uh-huh. a CW show or something mm-hmm. and they'd be like ella and i'd be like oh hey and they'd be like oh, I'm doing this now and this. And I was just like, okay. (laughs) But it just, the tone, the moment they're like, oh, have you seen this? Just that condescending, I know better and I'm smarter is just so, it's a weird thing. I'm like, it's so LA. Yeah. 
that that guy because I've, I've been to New York and New Orleans and all around but I've never seen that level of stupid douchebag we're just they have no idea they're being a dick even yeah hell I dated that guy <laughs> Um, I, I think that we all did at, at some point, yep. you know, some, some of them aren't, the, aren't so bad looking and it's just, you know, it seems like you can breeze over, you know, some of that shit because they're not talking all the time. So, yep, exactly. And then you like, and then you realize it and you're like, oh, oh God. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, this is not working out. <laughs> I will admit I legitimately dated a guy in college who was like a goth synthwave DJ. Oh, I remember him. <laughs> and he was so pretty and so dumb. And such an idiot and such a douchebag. And I just kind of kept going with it because I'm like, as long as I make dinner, he can't speak that much <laughs> and I can look at it. <laughs> And then after like three dates, I was like, okay, I quit. <laughs> I can't keep going with this. Uh, I was going to say, speaking of uh, characters, what female character, you mentioned that you really liked horror films. Uh, what female characters in horror films have inspired you? The characters, that's a really interesting question. Um, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like in the really popular, like big horror movies, like it's hard for me sometimes to identify with the women because they're just such quote, strong female leads. You know, they're just like good, such goody good girls who, you know, need to keep their pants on so that they live till the end. Um, and sometimes, you know, a, a man's idea of a strong female lead, um, I don't know, apparently sometimes like a raging cunt, like I think about the descent and I just think about all the girls in that, especially the one who threw away the map. And I'm like, somebody should have just like broken her neck right at that fucking moment, you know? Um, it's, I think that actually, um, how about Virginia Madsen and Candyman? She's fucking Ooh, great. Yeah. She is really smart. Um, she's kind of also kind of caught up in a really perverse love story. Um, I like uh, hearing you say between... that because I always get weird looks where it's like, what are some of your favorite love stories? I'm like, horns, Candyman, interview with the vampire. <laughs> like, yeah. And then people are like, do you, do you know what love is? That's not love. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it makes total sense. It's kind of, you know, he's a very... Tony Todd's character is a very Phantom of the Opera kind of character, mm -hmm. you know, that also kind of the staging, the way he's always behind her kind of looming. And, uh, you know, he's this, and the historic, his historical costume and sort of stuff. Um, you know, and she, even though she's a, a graduate student and very, uh, you know, uh, intelligent person, she kind of gives away so much of her power to him, like Christine Daae and Phantom of the Opera. Um, there is... I can understand too um, how he is an interesting and commanding and um, I don't, I would use the word alluring. self-willed self alternative to Xander Berkeley's character in, in the beginning of the film, you know, the, uh, the, the married professor who's like just such a, such a spineless cunt 
but also <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I love Sandra Berkeley, man. He's so fucking great. I was um, just talking about him with a friend about how much I love him in Air Force <laughs> One. He's just so great. I actually just made this connection to another film we've actually done on the podcast, um, American Mary. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's done by the amazing Soska sisters, um, who are my redheaded forever girl goddesses up there with Elvira and Vampirella. Um, and it's the story of a med student who, um, after some male professors do some very not good things, decides to get into body modification. Oh, that sounds cool. And yeah, you, you would love it. It's really good. Yeah, I was just thinking about it, about taking her passion, but then kind of using it for, in the end, her own self-fulfillment. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, I also love um, May. Like yes. everybody. I think that, like, I remember watching that movie and being, like, the first 10 minutes, I was like, I can't believe a guy directed this movie. I cannot believe he wrote this because he just, he just gets it. This is sick. This is sick that I watched it like right after a breakup too. So I was oh, like, no. how did how did he know? And I didn't know how this is insane. Um, she is she is so great in that film, and she is so she is so lovable, even as she is bad or whatever. Um, you know, I really rooted for her. And I even like, you know, uh, doormat that I am was rooting for her to end up with Jeremy Sisto. Like, I was like, God, I hope he just like figures it out and like realizes what like a good thing he has. But, you know, the, the really the, the disappointing and the very true part of that film is, you know, how he says that he wants this particular kind of girl and then he gets her. And rather than admit that, he's the one who's hypocritical, who's not as uh, iconoclastic or not subversive or nonconformist as he thinks he is, he blames her. And I oh, think yeah. that's so true. Uh, the biggest, I watched May, uh, my friend turned me onto it because literally I went, I was dating a guy in high school for a few weeks, super big gamer, played d played magic with me super excited and then we went to a friend's house and I used to be the soul caliber queen um yeah fuck yeah I could kill you with ivy and yes I'm aware I'm half naked I don't care I'm going to rip out your spine (laughs) and I beat him like three times in a row and this guy had shown no temper he was this really sweet nerd boy and I was like I killed him I was like booyah and he like threw his controller down and was like what's your problem why can't you just like play the game like everyone else and I was like the hell and pretty much he wanted a a gamer girl arm candy he wanted the idea of somebody not something that actually was and then a few weeks later my friend was like have you seen May I was like no and he's like we're just gonna get at Blockbuster to date this story very heavily <laughs> was like we're gonna go walk over to Blockbuster and I'm renting the film. I, gotta I mean, find I this think film that's now. <laughs> <laughs> that is like very much you know the situation I think in in the in I blame society where you know um, Jillian is dating Keith and you know she really thinks she's with somebody who wants to appear 
for to mm-hmm. be their girlfriend, somebody who's also, you know, a filmmaker and, um, but you know, when it comes to like supporting her as a filmmaker and supporting her through the hard parts, you know, he, he's loath to do that uh, and finds it, you know, too demanding, I think. And so he's kind of, he performs his allyship, you know, says that he wants to support her and wants to do those things. But really, you know, it's not a surprise at the end that he ends up having coffee with Stalin because really, you know, he, I think guys do want girls like Stalin, you know, who are gorgeous cheerleaders for their, you know, for their partners who want, you know, will subvert whatever their own dream is, you know, to make room for the other person, you know, like, um, Keith was written so well because, um, yeah, the first time I watch him, he's talking about editing. Mm -hmm. I just got so kind of visceral about it for a quick second. Uh, just because it is a simple fact, more women have won Oscars for editing than any men because men direct a bunch and then give it to women to make women make sense of it. (laughs) No, I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. And just the idea of a guy being so hypocritical for a woman's idea or passion. Uh, We had a, a DP for a while on one of the shows I did um, who eventually, uh, we let go of who was just made everyone uncomfortable and was kind of creepy. And it got to a point where I was like, why? Like I, cause I'd seen him on other stuff that was mostly men. And I was like, you were professional. You had your shit together and everything. Now I'm directing and I'm in a shot. I'm looking at the recording and I'm in this shot in the background, making sure the dogs didn't bark. How do you have so little respect for me doing the same thing than you will when it's at the time my boyfriend directing? And it was just that flip of from a guy to a girl in filmmaking of just suddenly disregarding so much. And I was just like, I saw that scene and I was just like, mm, that hits a, that hits a squishy place in me. Just that disregard. And then just his slow fall was just, you're right, it's, it's you don't want it to happen, but it's kind of like, you know, when you see a stone start to roll, you don't stop it, you just kind of, yeah I got there yeah it's funny you know people um you know have told me after the film they're like I really thought that she was going to murder Keith and I kind of thought that she was going to do it and like I kind of wanted her to um and I don't think it makes any sense I think that you know even after like being in a in a in a relationship with its problems like that you I, I don't, I, I think, you know, she, she probably like holds, holds out hope that in the end, like he'll come back or like at mm-hmm. least want her to come back and that kind of thing. I don't think that, I think she's so dependent on his approval. She really wants it so bad 
if she killed him, she couldn't get it. You know? Well, it's also kind of the, the classic movie trope of at the end, the guy will figure it out and come back to her window in the pouring rain with the boombox or the this. <laughs> and that's what I like so much about the fact that Keith doesn't get a moment in that kind yeah. of act. That's what I really, really liked about it is it's like, as much as she loves Keith, Keith is kind of like John and Jacob and Andrew and Micah and wh whoever else I dated back then. Like, I totally thought you were the one, but in the end, my life moves on. Yeah. But yeah, I it's not about him. It's about her mm -hmm. life. And yeah, some guys fade out. And I loved, I just want to say, I love that so much. Yeah, same. Thank you. I mean, he, Keith is a really great actor and I had a really like great time performing with him. I think he's an ideal movie boyfriend. I recommend <laughs> him to anybody. Um, <laughs> and I, and I really liked the, um, you know, I, I, I liked watching our report because like Keith and I have been friends, but like I live in LA, he lives in New York. Like I never get to see him that often. So it was really cool to see like, oh, on screen, we just fell into it as if we'd known each other for such a long time and we were so comfortable with each other. It made me think that if I ever did a sequel to this movie, it would be like from Keith's point of view of like after like Jillian has gone to jail and everybody is like, you know, think he's he's an idiot for like not having figured it out or done anything about it and they know like they've seen the movie and they that you know her documentary that she made and uh you know um it would just be like about how sad keith is that she's not there anymore and it would be called i blame myself Ooh, ooh, i like that <laughs> uh one interesting question i had when i was watching this too was Technically, it's found footage. Technically, it's mm -hmm. not. I am a huge, I know a lot of people are not big fans of it in horror. I love a good found footage horror film. Like Grave Encounters Creep is one of my favorite horror films of all time. And I was curious, as a writer, would you consider this found footage since we never really see where it goes? Can this I think be it like, is found footage for okay. sure, yeah. I do. I mean, although I didn't look at any other found footage films in that sense, because I think that most of them cheat. And I really wanted to like be very strict and rigorous about like, you know, shooting it on cameras that really, you know, a, a non-professional wouldn't have access to, would have yeah. access to rather than using like a red and then down resing it, which I think is just, it's, it's, it's fake and it, and it, it ruins the purpose of the movie, you know, which mm -hmm. is to, you know, justify this kind of certain lo-fi aesthetic and, and things like Bound that. Found footage is either very, very good in my opinion or very, very bad. And the films that make a reason that the camera is good tend to be the ones that are good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just saying the movie, uh, The Visit. Yeah. Uh, oh, is that the grandma one? I really mm -hmm. have always meant to see that. Oh, that looks so yeah. good. I, don't so say good. anything. Don't say anything. Yeah. Uh, the twist in that, uh, I almost peed myself. Yeah. Not even going to lie, stuff does not get to me. Weirdly enough, our babysitter episode got to me that we recently did. <laughs> Ashy's first episode in like 30 episodes that she legitimately <laughs> creeped me the hell out. Um, 
but no, there's uh, there's two films that are really good for that. Uh, what is Creep One and Creep Two? And they're two people horror films, but the whole point is the main character has hired a professional filmmaker, right, to do it. Um, so that makes sense, and it's very just two characters, very weird, very creepy. creepy. <laughs> oh, I see. We there. have another star showing up. <laughs> Hi, I'm Pepper. I was in the film too. Hi, oh, I remember Pepper. There's I saw like, the tail and I was like, oh, oh, we have a guest appearance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the other one that's uh, probably one of my favorite ones is Grave Encounters, which is Lily Dunn as like Ghost Hunter Bros. Oh, cool. That get into a seriously like there are, there are no doors. There is no way out horror film but it makes sense they have all the cameras but it's mostly just satisfying to watch like a bunch of ghost hunter bros legitimately get like thrown out windows by ghosts <laughs> that sounds really good yeah yeah and there's ghost hunter 2 that actually weirdly my two favorites tie like the sequel works which i think is one of my reasons i like it because anytime a sequel works i'm like Oh. oh, you know which one is really good? It's okay. This is technically like a. Sh it's this is part of an anthology. Did you ever see um, the awful thing that happened to Emily in VHS? The I've heard about it. Um, it's Joe Swanberg's section in VHS, and it is a found footage thing, like with webcams, and it is so scary. And like I know we've been talking about like. Oh, boys. that's that's the VHS two. Is that with the boyfriend? no? It's the first one. The first one. It's with the boyfriend who's like she's. She says that like she thinks that they're aliens. Remember? Yes. And he's like gaslighting her. That thing <gasps> is so scary. The first one in VHS with the execute. I don't, they don't really describe it. That one scared me. Is that too? There was a, uh, another found footage in VHS too. They put it on a dog. And just the entire like 20 minutes of it just gave me such bad anxiety because I was just holding my dog. <laughs> like you can put this anywhere, but don't put it on the animal. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I have that thing where I can watch anything happen to a human being, but I cannot watch anything bad happen to an animal because mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like it's unfair, you know? Um, yeah. As a human, like, you know that it's all pretend and that, like, it's not real when, like, somebody threatens you with a knife or, you know, that you're going to do it again. With animals, like, of course, every performance is authentic because, like, they really are scared and they're snarling and all that stuff and they are frightened by this person in a mask. And I just... I think there's something unconscionable about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just don't get any pleasure out of it. And I really get pleasure out of pe watching people get butchered. So uh, one of my good friends, Stefan, who's been on the podcast before, uh, he, he made a good point. I don't like it. But he said he likes it when animals are killed on screen or when an animal dies in a horror film, because that way, you know, nothing is safe anymore. I mean, He's like, I like it because I don't know who's going to die now. I don't know what rules they will break now. And I was like, I understand, but. It's effective conceptually, but I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think it's like actually something that. I don't know. Yeah, There's like, a lot of things you could do in a movie, but you just don't because it's 
gross. I mean, <laughs> and unless no, you're but, Eli Roth, which in case you're, that's all you're going for. I yeah. mean, I, I like Eli Roth. I like his Green Inferno movie because he's riffing on those like animal torture movies and he has like a great, um, he has a great point behind it. You know, actually I do really, I, I do really like Eli Roth's films. There's this part of me that feels like I shouldn't like them because they're so bro but God, you know. I want to watch Green Inferno, but I am oddly enough a really big fan of Cannibal Holocaust. But I feel like anytime I say that, I sound more like a serial killer. Uh-huh. But the thing that not a lot of people get about Cannibal Holocaust was the whole point is they were showing the exploitativeness of newscasters and the way media can be manipulated and that was all very prevalent in the 70s the vietnam war is how were journalists faking and manipulating and changing stuff which is the very end of the film is going we can't show this Mm -hmm. because it's not because it's gross not because they all die because it's they lie and I, I love that, you know, underlying fact of Cannibal Holocaust, what its message underneath dead turtles and so much blood and, and terrible film practices was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will admit it's one of those films I own and it's like in its case. So when people are like, I haven't seen it, I'm like, here you go. <laughs> Do you want to watch it with me? Oh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I would like you to see it and then talk to me about it. I do not want to sit through this film again. Yeah, no way. <laughs> uh, we were talking about something and there was a point that got brought up that I, I really, really liked that got brought up a lot in the film, especially to do with horror. Mm-hmm. It's the likable female. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that so much because as you brought up earlier, as long as you keep your pants on and you're the babysitter, you're fine. Mm -hmm. And how horror, while in one way, does such a good job about promoting women can be strong, women can be powerful. It's a certain type of women that get to be powerful, that get to be strong. And I I don't think really want you to go more into that because I was just like, I, I love this so much. Mm-hmm. I don't think that horror's figured out yet how to put more complicated female characters in, in a protagonist position. I think there are there are actually like there are examples. I'm not nothing is like jumping to mind, but I think it's like getting better and people are 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 making them more complicated and more interesting. But I think that you know it is part of this um, you know the the older history of horror, like kind of fulfilling traditional expectations of, you know, well, the reason that, you know, people are going to get butchered is because they've transgressed and they need to be punished. And so the person who doesn't transgress, you know, they get to survive after being terrorized, but they get to survive. And so that person has to act as like a paragon of of virtue and, in that sense, they also end up being the least interesting person in the movie. So it's kind of this, um, you know, double-edged sword where they're they're the good person and the protagonist and whatever, but they also end up making women look bad because they, you know, seem really boring and Victorian. 
I can definitely say, especially with like a Nightmare on Elm Street with Nancy, who's, mm-hmm. uh, and as much as I love her in the later films, uh, the original Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis is very, very, very boring. I recently yeah. Yeah. We watched the first Halloween and I was like, wow, Jamie Lee, you are just vanilla. Yeah, not even French vanilla. Just No, just plain vanilla. <laughs> I think it's a lot of, honestly, as I, I look through modern horror and how much I, what I really start to get into and what I really start liking uh, is either stuff that's very much breaking the mold, stuff like Midsommar and The Witch, or if it has a female lead in it, it is female either written or directed. Because I think especially in horror, um, more than any other genre, it's become put person A with person B, give serial killer, uh, I don't know, a razor bladed salmon. It's just whatever weird instrument of terror they can pick for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it can be have very generic. I have a film about the 1970s that's a killer guy in a Reagan mask with a chainsaw in the middle of Woodstock. Mostly because I wanted to see killer Reagan kill hippies because I was like, that sounds entertaining to <laughs> be honest. But that's that's where the interest has come from. It's not the characters, it's the killer. Mm-hmm. That's what you go to see. Oh, is it a dream demon or a leather face or a pinhead or a phantasm or I'm going to stop myself. Um, but there's very, very few. Uh, I'm like trying to think like, of course, like Ripley and Sydney Prescott that do break the mold, but there's so few and far between. I think it's because, you know, they need to be somebody who is continually frightened and haunted or traumatized by somebody. And then they also like, in order to like build the stakes and like keep doing it throughout the movie, for some reason they're putting up with it and listening to people who tell them that it's not real or they can't go anywhere or they can't do anything. So they always seem like doormats, you know, because of the, mm-hmm. of the service of the genre and the format, you know, which is that, you know, you need X amount of kills, you need this kind of escalation. Um, I think I think that the only possibility is that either the woman has to be the aggressor in some way, or she is somehow um, unconventional in that she becomes complicit in some way. Like I think um, some really good examples of, well, one, I, it depends if you think of it as horror, is is Kissed, the Lynn Stopkowicz movie with uh, Molly Parker. Oh, well, actually, I've um, seen that that which is about a woman who's a necrophiliac and uh, who works in a morgue Ooh. and um another one is um how about karen black and burnt offerings you know she yeah. starts off as a, a character who is you know just a mom and then fucking loses it and like becomes complicit in like the terror of the house and that's what makes her interesting and r- really great uh, a, a flip side of burnt offerings, I would also bring up uh, your next, mm-hmm. 
um if you've seen that one oh yeah i like that yeah oh yeah just uh how much aaron kind of flips the uh everybody scream and hide mm-hmm. to the moment she just immediately is like i'm gonna set up traps and set up pills and set up this the point you're like yeah one of them definitely murders a police officer brutally <laughs> because she's by the end of the film aaron is absolutely unhinged yeah i mean she kills somebody with a blender one of the best kills in the movie but (laughs) that takes some like real force of will to jam a blender into somebody's skull i love i do really like that movie there's a lot that i like in it um i like a lot of the performances i love the filmmaking um i love sharni vinson since step up three i think she is a real talent (laughs) Um, I do think that there is something about her, though, that is like unrealistically girl bossy, which I find alienating. Um, I actually, unpopularly, I like Margaret Qualley better in Death Note, another Adam Wingard movie. Nobody likes Death Note, I guess, because they love the manga or whatever. But I yeah, never read I, it. I, I read the manga, so I was like, oh, I take it she plays Misa. Yeah, she's just this, uh, she seems like this kind of like, you know, needy, useless high school girl. And then she ends up being like the total psycho. And I loved it. Yeah, uh, that's a really, really fun one. There's a, a, oddly enough, I feel like anime, that is kind of a more common trope in a lot of Mm -hmm. the uh, more recent, probably 2005 plus. uh, If you think of like Elfin Leon and Crimson Red, where a show will place this very cute, bubbly character who's just stumbling and big-eyed and, you know, and then somehow you find out, you know, she has the psychic power to tear the skin off your body, or (laughs) she's secretly, like, the robot sent from alien worlds to destroy us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And anytime I find one of those, I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm down to watch this one. Um, before we go, because I know we're starting to run out of time, but I do uh, have one more question. Uh, where do you see feminist horror going? I think we're going to face a golden age if we're if we're lucky and if um, if all goes according to plan. Um, I think that as more progress is made with having more and more women direct, eventually, just by sheer numbers and statistics more original stories from women will will come forward and you know there'll still always be the reboots and the remakes and stuff and um just again statistically that's going to be the majority because that is the majority of what people make but i think as more women get into the business and are allowed a place and they make hits and they got more power they can advocate more for original storytelling on their part with their ideas and then that will be good for everybody because we'll get to you know, see deeper inside women's psyches. And I think that women can be just as gory and disturbing and problematic at, as men can. And I think it's, it's important you know, to, to highlight that because only then you know, will uh, even like the worst misogynists see their humanity because mm-hmm. you, know, you need to see the good and the bad of, of a person in order to recognize them as a human like yourself, you know, just kind of putting women on pedestals and saying that, you know, 
they don't lie and they're always good girls like number one who believes that mm-hmm. and and number two like it's just not appear in somebody that you would see as subjectively somebody like yourself you know that sounds mm-hmm. like somebody who's a uh, an angel and a fake or somebody who needs to be dragged down, not somebody who shares the same flaws that you have and then, you know, deserves to be treated with the same respect that you do. Yeah, I completely agree. That was beautifully said. Yeah, I was actually saying it kind of reminded me of uh, a quote. Uh, it kind of reminded me of a quote uh, by Bella Lugosi that says women, uh, he says, women love horror, they crave it. And like pretty much just all you said was like encompassing that quote. And I was just like, Ugh, it's, I, I agree with it so much. Well, it, especially if you think about today's day and age, women constantly live in fear. Mm-hmm. We live in fear walking to our cars. We live in fear dating somebody, kissing somebody off at, you know, Target. You know, it's, it's a very scary time. And I think horror gives women a chance to safely experience it in a weird kind of training practice. Yeah, I have to advocate here. This is a great place for my personal favorite brand of horror movie, which is the Jalo. This is like, oh, where, yes. What I love the most is watching beautiful women lose their mind and either like get butchered or kill people. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just spirals and all of those things, they allow me to like release a certain tension. I I feel better watching them. I feel an escape. I've, I feel more beautiful. I feel more feminine watching those films. And usually like, Mm -hmm. I don't always associate feeling feminine with feeling good. You know, um, that can, to me, sometimes it can mean feeling othered or or weak or overlooked or uh you know full of menstrual blood like it's not always like a great thing but jalos which weirdly totally dominated by men they you know like lucky mckee and may they like you know keyed into something there and and found something that that i connect to and makes me feel good the jalo film is it's so interesting because I feel like every character in the Jalo film, by the end, they're all at 10. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I think I ha- was having a conversation about somebody with Jalo is men at 10 are beastly. Women at 10 are goddesses. Yeah. There is mm-hmm. just something awesome about, yeah. Is when Watching men go to that just... 10, they're just scratching and they're mean and they're there's just something animalistic, but it's like the crazier and the more powerful, the more psychotic the woman gets, the longer the capes get, the more dramatic the hair gets, <laughs> the, the, you get the beautiful red lipstick with those little blood drops coming down. I think the, there's some men who like when they hit 10, it's pretty great. Like um, Vincent Cassell, I love watching him just flip out. I like, um, do you remember this movie Brotherhood of the Wolf? Yes, I do. Do you I remember? Love, I love werewolf films to a slightly unhealthy way. I love that there's this scene where he's like kind of transforming and he starts crying because he wants to fuck his sister. And I just, I'm like, <laughs> it's this movie's weird. it. This movie's it. 
You're like, you're, you're not hiding anything. All right, let's keep going. Uh, my favorite subtitle that's ever existed is in a werewolf film, actually. It is a film called Howl. It is literally snakes on a train, on a plane. Oh, the except, Indian movie? Uh, no, it's, it's literally werewolves attacking a train. That's it. Huh. It's just werewolves attacking a train. Uh, I'm a sucker for good monster design. Mm-hmm. And the werewolf design in it is amazing. But there's a rich girl. She's like, you know, the, the fancy I'm coming from Moscow. And the subtitle, for some god-known reason, says, Screams in High Class. Love it. <laughs> and I literally just rewinded it like three times to be like, seriously, are you having her scream in high class? Whoever is doing the dubbing on that, so high, tall order, but I respect it. <laughs> I'm like, whoever you are. Um, it has been an absolute honor to watch this. Uh, Julian, please tell all of our listeners where they can find the film, where they can follow you, all of your amazing stuff, and what you are doing next. Um, well, the film comes out on February 12th on demand. So wherever you want, where you, wherever you find your movies that you rent, um, like on iTunes or Amazon or Roku, it'll it'll be there. And um, if you so desire, you can follow me on social media. My uh, handle on Twitter is just my name, Jillian Horvat. And then it's a little bit more complicated on Instagram. It's a pun. It's um, Cinnabon file. So Cinnabon, like the best restaurant in the world, file like P-H-I-L-E. So. <laughs> I thought I was free of the puns with MJ. Stay pretend. That's it. Thank you so much, ladies. I really enjoyed this. And so did Pepper. She's just <laughs> falling asleep. So relaxed. We're, we're so happy our voices could soothe you, Pepper. That's all we did this for. It's all for, it's all for you, Pepper. It's all oh. for you. Yes. Pepper's appreciating it. All right, Ashley, you want to give all of our listeners where they can find us and so what they can check out the new stuff on? Yep. Uh, you guys can find us on our Instagram and our Facebook, as well as our Patreon. Um, and not only does our Patreon help us out and help you guys get this amazing content, it also helps up. It also helps out a local charity. Uh, Ella, what is that charity this month? Uh, we're continuing with Helping Hands, especially through this winter month in Oklahoma City. Helping Hands is a food delivery program that helps seniors in rural Oklahoma to get the food, medicine, and basic necessities they may need. During this time of COVID, a lot of elderly people are scared to leave their houses. This is a safe, easy way for them to get hot meals and the, what they need to survive. So yeah, you're helping um, you're helping someone get what they need to survive. Uh, And we are also going to give you guys a very special surprise. Once we hit 10 subscribers, we will be doing a D&D series on our uh, Patreon as well as Twitch. Ella, would you like to give our listeners a little bit more information on that? Uh, Sure. We will be playing a team of sister, demon, zombie, vampire, werewolf, hunting, us. Pretty much uh, female versions of Sam and Dean from Supernatural. <laughs> I like just calling it and just being like, this is just what we would do if we could. Yep. That will be DM'd by the always amazing and always stunning and always my one and only Nat 20, Joshua Henry, my darling husband, who you heard on such episodes as 
Dr. Sleep, and of course, our epic Christmas Carol episode. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, you guys can check out the video of this episode on our Patreon. So please do check it out. You'll be getting video content of this as well as our last, uh, the last guest episode that we did with uh, Liz, the Wicker Man. So definitely check out our Patreon. And once again, it's been an absolute blast to have you on this podcast. Please, everybody, go check out I Blame Society. Yes. Rent it, buy it, stream it, show it to your friends, show it to your family, show it to your cat. They'll really get a, like, a big hit out of Pepper's performance. <laughs> yeah. Hard agree. Hard agree. She's got, she needs to build her cat fan base because she'd be, <laughs> she'd be the mess, next big thing. <laughs> yeah, move over, uh, grumpy cat. We got Pepper up in here. <laughs> well, once again, thank everybody for listening to this episode. And as always, good, bad. We're the girls with the mic. See y'all next week.